Attempting to forecast the future can be dangerous, but this episode is all about that and more. Previously on our series on entrepreneurship research, we have explored the history of the field, its dramatic rise, and the variety of research areas that our faculty are currently engaged in. But what about the future? What are the unexplored areas of entrepreneurship research that will draw new scholars from around the world to better understand entrepreneurs and how they impact our economy and society? There are some common themes you will hear throughout this episode, including how new research might redefine what we know as entrepreneurship today, driven by the emergence of new industries, business models, societal changes, and technological advancements. We start this exploration with Dr. Daniel Clark, who notes that much of the research literature has focused on the startup phase, and there's much more to the story than those early beginnings. In the early days of entrepreneurship, there were two distinct questions. Like, you know, there was startup and scale-up, okay? In the last 10 to 15 years, I would say the work on startup phase firms versus scale-up phase firms was like five or eight or 10 to one, right? There was so much interest in firm starting and what got people to start firms and the early days of, of, of firm emergence. The phase after that has kind of been punted to other literatures, the strategy literature, the management literature, I think because of the resource constraints and the limitations, the cognitive limitations of entrepreneurs and the organizational limitations of entrepreneurs and the, the resources limitations of entrepreneurial firms, we need to take back a lot of that. We need to be, get, be better at going to the strategy and management literatures, finding interesting questions. and finding articulate ways to ask them to an entrepreneurial audience and and systematically demonstrate that entrepreneurial firms continuously are different from established firms and they approach these uh, these problems in different ways and all and they have a wide variety of outcomes because of that and I think that's where a lot of this is going to go and I can tell you from a cognition perspective we know almost nothing about the cognitive dynamics within operating scale-up firm. We have punted all of that and just basically assume it is like a much larger firm, which of course it's not. And it's certainly not like a brand new firm where you're, you can just say, it's the entrepreneur, stupid. You know, it's how is he thinking what, or she thinking or how are they operating? No, you are in a group dynamic. There is a, t- a tight t- network of interrelated cognitions and what we know about that is almost nothing. I mean, it's very, very limited. I mean, the top team cognition literature is tiny. The idea of new models and frameworks go far beyond the life cycle of enterprises. It also includes the ever-expanding cast of industries created by innovative ventures and technologies. That is the area that excites Dr. Eric Morse. Yeah, you know, I think we'll see more development of business models and, and in the sense of industry specific. So I, I think we're 
we're probably we're already at a point where if you're going into high tech, you're going to have uh, to consider different attributes uh, of your business model than you would if you're going into you know something that's more product uh, product based uh, or consumer good based. Um, how you finance those ventures is different, and I think we're we're seeing a huge shift in the financing of entrepreneurial ventures with so much private equity out there. Uh, you know, the angel investor has always been important, but now we're seeing angel investors, uh, you know, fill in uh, where we used to have venture capital. So, you know, the finance industry is, is changing and how we look at entrepreneurs, how we fund entrepreneurs. And, and I think that's going to continue to evolve for sure. The other piece that I think is really interesting is we've been talking about global entrepreneurship for decades. Uh, Trisha McDougall wrote a really interesting piece back in mid-90s, I think it was, uh, on starting global. And it happened back then, but now we're really starting to see it. Uh, we're seeing workforces are distributed across the globe, and COVID certainly uh, you know, facilitated that or, or pushed it ahead. But I think the idea of international and global entrepreneurship, uh, global at startup, uh, is something that we'll see more and more of. Dr. Simon Parker concurs and relates some of his observations from Silicon Valley, where fintech is leading the way for a whole host of technology under the banner, Internet of Things. Understanding more about how platforms and fintech, big data, smart cities, and massive, massive real-time data sets, all of that I'm bundling into one area where I think as those data begin to become available, there are going to be a whole range of questions around digital interactions and digital entrepreneurship and financing it, which are going to open up and provide opportunities for, entre for entrepreneurship researchers. So I think there's a, there's a huge area around that. And it's, it's diffuse, right? There's a lot of different topics that I've mentioned there, but I'm collecting them together, Internet of Things, there's a lot of opportunities for entrepreneurs in that, and therefore there's a lot of opportunities for researchers to study what those entrepreneurs are going to be doing. Um, so I think as we look forward and we see more AI, more robotics, more use of interconnected, networked, real-time data-generating activities and operations, there's going to be huge amounts of entrepreneurial opportunity and a lot of work to study it. This explosion of innovative technology is not only providing new avenues for growth and value generation, it also holds the key to solving our greatest challenges, as Dr. Laurel Steinfield notes. So I think that we're going to see entrepreneurship research maybe advance in, in two different ways. I mean, there's many different ways, but two areas that cross over with my area of, of, of expertise and, and, and scholarship is the one in understanding how entrepreneurship can be used and is critical to addressing the wicked problems that we face with regards to everything from climate change to obtaining the sustainable development goals, addressing poverty, you know, all these dynamics. I think entrepreneurship is going to become a critical 
element that governments will start to try and support as engines to drive these changes. Uh, and I think universities as well, as we start to develop courses that are really about understanding how to create social innovations, uh, how to launch and run social enterprises. So really balancing the need to have a positive impact in the world with also the need to, to make profits and be sustainable. Dr. Parker agrees. The second big area, I think, looking forward, which is really exciting, is about climate change, sustainability, sustainable startups, and ways that entrepreneurs are going to be solving some of these big questions. And I'll give you an example. When I took a group of EMBA students over to San Francisco uh, earlier this year, one of the startups we visited was a green battery startup. The venture had researched and they were now looking to start going into production for a battery that could store charge, electric charge, using materials that are very readily available, that aren't scarce and that are reusable. Now, this is one of probably hundreds of similar types of startup all going on at the same time. So, you know, the image that comes to mind is the fruit flies in the Petri dish, uh, that, that there's this buzz of activity and only a few of the fruit flies are going to make it at the end of the experiment. And the problem for entrepreneurial finance, for venture capital, is they know that one or two of these technologies is going to win, or one or two of these companies are going to win, but they don't know which one. And they all look pretty much the same. And this is what makes the VC's problem so, so difficult and why so few of their funded portfolio ventures ever actually get seriously into the money. It's, it's just the odds of any particular one that's funded making it and being the winner of these tournaments is just so small. Now, this type of startup is going on at the same time as a lot of ongoing efforts to generate more and more renewable energy, whether that's through wind or solar or tidal or geothermal, or whatever it is, that energy is going to have to be stored. That's where the green batteries come in. At the same time as all this, there's all this work going on on hydrogen um, and on applications of it as well. On um, nuclear fusion, which is getting very close now to generating more power than it's consuming in, in generating that, that output. The opportunities here for entrepreneurs to create ventures that drive forward these, use these technologies and drive forward progress on sustainable energy creation has never been more pressing and has never been more substantial in terms of the sheer aggregate volume of activity that's going on in this area. And this is going to change very much the nature of entrepreneurship, the type of people that are doing it and the kinds of impacts that they're making and how they're going to be interfacing with regulators, with existing firms, with industry generally. So it's a, it's a very exciting and uncertain wave of activity that's going on. And it's, it's hugely a bit like the first Topic, set of topics I mentioned that I put under the sort of interconnected big data type heading. This is also very diverse, it's heterogeneous, 
It's going to be moving in all sorts of different directions. And I see research opportunities here, not just analyze it as a phenomenon. I want to make that clear, that the opportunities for research I see are not just phenomenon driven. But I think also, a bit like I mentioned earlier, how social enterprise is qualitatively different and stands on its head sometimes, some of the ex accepted wisdoms that we think we know. So I think with these two areas, it could also change what we think of as entrepreneurship in ways that I don't think we are yet able to appraise, we're yet able to fully anticipate. So I think it's going to change what we think of as enterprise and enterprising behavior. And if that sounds vague, it's, it's deliberate because I really think the, we cannot see into the future and we, we cannot anticipate what, what, what's going to come forward from come out of all this activity. But the idea of redefining what we know as entrepreneurship is not only being challenged by new industries and technological advancements. As noted in our previous episode, there are a number of scholars looking into more axiological questions, like what is success? Is entrepreneurship only about creating value? Is entrepreneurship always a good thing? Here's Dr. Dominic Lim on the topic. So in some cases, Entrepreneurship can be a lever for these individuals who start a company to improve their life and get to the next level. Really, other than entrepreneurship, what is the right way to get from, let's say, I was born with nothing and then flying private jet? Uh, so actually, it's the lever for that social move, movement, right, uh, and improvement. But at the same time, entrepreneurship can be used as a way to hamper that social movement as well, right? Because in some countries, this small strata of people, small group of people can actually safeguard the information and the access to the resources. And then they can keep their all that wealth and value among themselves as well. And so this is a kind of like emerging economies versus advanced kind of economies type of thing. So do is entrepreneurship really a kind of like tool and the ladder for diversity and inclusion and the social mobility? Or could it be the other way around? Traditionally, we focused on wealth creation and value creation. I mean, we always uh, said value creation, but really it was <laughs> really about <laughs> uh, a lot about uh, creating wealth for the entrepreneur uh, himself, herself, and the investors and different stakeholders. Uh, but uh, more and more we are thinking about uh, the other side of entrepreneurship, like you mentioned, right? And that's including like, you know, diversity of uh, entrepreneurs themselves and diversity of the entrepreneurial process, as I briefly mentioned, and the diversity in terms of how we measure the value created by entrepreneurship and also the cost, right, of entrepreneurship as well, such as like, you know, 
uh, quality of life, work-life balance, and psychological well-being, and all these things are becoming uh, like gaining uh, increasing interest from the research in entrepreneurship. Dr. Janice Byrne is also hoping for more scholarship, questioning our current positive assumptions. We live in a world where there is, there's not limitless resources, right? Like, so this whole growth thing, you know, um, well, there's a limit to it. And if we're just going to pursue, and that's what entrepreneurship is always, you know, we always see this stuff about, you know, build it, scale it, grow it, blah, blah, blah. We're, okay, um, where is that bringing us? Is that really where we want to go? Um, and it doesn't always have to be under, the, like if we if we do recognize that, you know, entrepreneurship can bring social value, um, yeah, it can also bring personal value and it doesn't always have to be about making things bigger. And it, it we should come back to this notion of it being about maybe using resources in different ways. So like the circular economy, these different ideas about how uh, we need to get on to more entrepreneurs in green technologies in, in and the circular economy. We This is where we need to focus our efforts on understanding because this is ultimately what's going to help us. The, the world is going to be fine, probably, but whether we're going to survive is a different question. So I, I would like it to do that. But it's not merely about systems and the larger picture. These problems can also be very personal. I think I'd like to see research that looks a bit more at the darker side of it. Um... Because, you know, and again, this is linked to the whole, the way we talk about entrepreneurship, but, you know, the long hours and the, the hustle and grid and the, you know, you got to be prepared, you burn the midnight oil and all that stuff. Look at the implications this has for people. Look at the implications it has for their quality of life, um, how much they're sleeping, how their health is, um, how their interactions with their family and relations with their spouses and kids are. Because um, if we buy into this kind of, um, all-consuming, um, resilient and gritty entrepreneur, uh, if we buy into that idea, um, it has implications for our personal well-being and our personal lives and relationships. And I think I'd like to see a little bit more about that because there are so many burnt out, exhausted, unhappy entrepreneurs out there. And we need to stop romanticizing it and we need to expose it warts and all. And I think I'd like to see a little bit more of that. Theoretical frameworks and what we choose to research is often a reflection of the times. As scholarship around the intersection of gender, ethnicity, age, and class have come to the fore in other fields, its emergence in the field of entrepreneurship is to be expected. Here's Dr. Steinfield's observations. The other area where I think we'll see more scholarship growing is actually theories and papers that shift away from the very traditional dominant discourse, which, as any critical scholar will tell you, has typically been uh, ones that... Uh, reflect the origins of entrepreneurship theory as uh, something that's very androcentric or masculine and something that typically comes from Western perspectives. And so I think we are going to potentially see things um, that understand the ways that entrepreneurship 
is run by uh, non-white people and by non-males and understanding also the in the the nuances that they bring to how they do entrepreneurship. And I think the other area is, and I don't want to throw jargons or, or buzzwords, but I do think there is a big movement to understand how entrepreneurship can occur in a way that is not a reflection of colonialism. And by that, I mean kind of this desire to own property and this desire to reinforce kind of ownership or competitiveness, but really one that is perhaps one of a decolonialized approach, which really starts to encourage people to see each other more in relationship ways and understand the way that entrepreneurship can be used to help each other and, 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 and really bridge um, society, bring society together and not just being people centric, but also understanding uh the way that our actions affect the environment and affect kind of um, non, non-human non species, right? And so I think that there is going to be this understanding and broadening of entrepreneurship to account for more ways of seeing the world uh, and new theories and, and new theoretical perspectives that are grounded uh, in, in different approaches to, to life in general. And there is much to be said in how our modern perceptions of entrepreneurship are linked to specific Western ideas and values. Dr. Larry Plummer shares his thoughts on this topic. So it's not exclusive an American thing. There is actually a pretty famous paper about the Protestant work ethic. Um, So Alfred Weber's work on uh, the Protestant ethic, but tied directly to the study of entrepreneurship. There is a paper that says, you know, um, Calvinists believed that their financial success was a sign of God's providence. And so therefore, the the premise that being an entrepreneur and being a successful entrepreneur is a sign of, well, God's providence, I've already said it, is really interesting. So that does connect. So if you do have the Protestant ethic, which is a very new, I mean, I'm a, in terms of my heritage, I'm pure New England. So my ancestors would have all been you know, traders and merchants and, you know, having some kind of uh, trade that they were going to be doing, because that would have been totally normal. So I do think it has a very strong American connection, but I think it's because it's a largely Western European kind of cultural thing. I don't think it's necessarily exclusive. So for example, uh, one of the most entrepreneurial countries in the world is Sweden of all places. I have colleagues and friends who are professors of entrepreneurship all over Sweden. They have outstanding business schools. They have an outstanding entrepreneurial community. And it's just not a place where people are thinking, oh, Sweden, surely, surely makes sense that Sweden would be very entrepreneurial. And it, But it is. I don't know if that's because there is a robust public, you know, social welfare, public welfare kind of programs. There's certainly health care that's available. You will often hear American entrepreneurs talking about one of the barriers for them wanting to be an entrepreneur is a lot of times now healthcare is so expensive in the United States that it's actually preferable for some people to stay on board their an employer just for the sole reason that they need to be able to provide health insurance to their families. And of course, Canada doesn't. We don't have that limitation because we've got, we've got a single payer system for healthcare. So, yes, it's correlated with with the American economy, but it's not exclusively an American thing, is what I would describe it as. Therefore, the contingent values arising from different cultures 
can severely shape what the future of entrepreneurship looks like. Here's a few key differences that Dr. Byrne has gleaned from her interactions with Indigenous entrepreneurs. That's when you, you can often see real resourcefulness, right? But it's also where you see, I mean, there's an Indigenous woman entrepreneur who I've worked with previously who really stressed, you know, she, she was kicking back against, pushing back against this whole notion of like networking and not liking the instrumentality of, of networking and what you were there for and why you were doing it. And she was like, for her, it was about community. It wasn't about network. It was about community. And in other words, that means that changes your mindset, right? That means you're showing up at a place or a space, not with an instrumental kind of what am I going to get out of this uh, idea? And nor, and, not, and that's not to say that everybody turns up those things with that instrumentalist view. Some also do just want, want to give, right? But her idea about community was really like this notion of, well, what can I contribute here that's going to make things better for everybody, right? So it's not, it's going beyond exchange and instrumentality. It's going beyond altruism and giving for the goodness and helping one individual. It's about community and building community and constructing something that's bigger and better, or not bigger, but definitely better and uh, for everyone. And, and that for me really struck me in terms of understanding what uh, an indigenous approach and knowledge can bring to entrepreneurship. Similarly, the emerging economies in Africa will also have a large say in what entrepreneurship might look like in the coming decades. Dr. Steinfeld's work across a number of countries in Africa has given her a glimpse of some of these qualities. South Africa, to me, has always been where I learned about social enterprises, and it was really a hub for social enterprises. And it's a different way of doing business that reflects kind of this mindset that South Africans, some South Africans have of needing to be able to give back and to their communities and raise up their communities while also ensuring they're sustainable and making a profit. And so I think that is one thing that we'll probably start to see more and more and more of as and we'll see different models roll out as, as entrepreneurship in that area grows. But I also think that we're going to have to severely think about how we engage entrepreneurs in a way that doesn't see equate entrepreneurship with always constant growth and high growth and reflect that the way that entrepreneurship might unfold in Africa is likely different. And in fact, some of the things that we see is, as an example, rather than growing a single business to be bigger, they typically end up doing what is called a portfolio approach, where they'll actually add a number of different businesses to try and diversify their business base, right? And so it, it is in some ways growth, but it's horizontal growth. And then you have other ways that they that we look at what they're doing. We're like, well, why are they doing that? Why are, if you ever go to... A marketplace in in a in an area in Africa, you'll often see many fruit vendors all selling the same things in the same area, and you're kind of wondering, well, why are they imitating each other, right? And there is something there with reducing risk, but also the importance of relationships. And so, it is a shift away from our perspective of entrepreneurship being constant about con constantly about growth to entrepreneurship about everyday livelihoods and just ensuring that you can make ends meet and actually provide for your family uh, and that you reinvest the profits from your business into your family for future generations. Um, and that then I think also then means that we'll have to rethink how we think about financing these enterprises. If these enterprises 
are reinvesting their profits, not always in growth, but actually in their family needs, then you have to have very flexible forms of financing that allows for that to happen, particularly when, for example, school fees are due or when funerals happen and where family events like that happen, you have to enable these entrepreneurs to to access their funds uh, in a more flexible way so that they can use the funds when they need it for their family and then reinvest it in their businesses when the family dynamics are, are more imbalanced and, and more kind of even keeled. Um, so I think there is a need to not only understand the way the entrepreneurship will manifest, but also the way that we then have to change marketplace structures to actually support those entrepreneurs in the way that they live their lives. So rather than trying to fit them into the way we expect them to operate, we need to understand first the way they operate and then create products that actually support this dynamic. But the future of entrepreneurship research is not simply about looking ahead or horizontally. Some of it is emerging from more ancient roots. So religion and entrepreneurship is now a, a major area of study, you know, because it's um, there's a really great book that I, I just read called um, Wanamaker's Temple. Wanamaker was an entrepreneur and an evangelical um, living in the Philadelphia area. Anybody who's listening to this who knows the Philadelphia area knows that Wanamaker's was a major department store. The building is still there. Um and inside the building, this large, large building that he built in the core of the building was a large organ um, for 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 religious services that he would have inside the store on Sundays. Um, you know, so the connection between religion and entrepreneurship is really interesting. The Protestant ethic, of course, is one in which, uh, again, talking about your your entrepreneurial success is a sign of God's providence. Now, when I was at in Oklahoma, where a lot of students would be particularly um, evangelical and particularly have strong uh, Christian faith, um, where they would struggle is in interpreting uh, their their interpretation of things like um, the stories of Jesus flipping the tables of the money changers at the temple. And the question is, you know, how to interpret that? One interpretation is that he was not happy that the exchange was being done in the temple. So you're you know, this is a place of worship, not a place for commerce. Okay, that's one interpretation. Another interpretation is um, a push against, you know, charging interest. So the sin of usury. But the last one, which is the one that a lot of my thoughtful students would particularly is would would try to struggle with is, is it a, a sign of a conflict in terms of just commerce in general? Is being an entrepreneur um, somehow not consistent with my Christian beliefs? And then the last point is, that's really interesting is starting to understand, you know, in the Jewish faith, for example, the Talmudic law. There, the Talmud has an entire list of, of rules um, for businesses, the encouragement of being in a trade, that the trade that you're involved in be clean, that it be uh, a trade that you can then teach to your your progeny, that you can teach to your children and so on, and that your transactions and you conduct your business in a way that's honest and fair. And, you know, I mean, these, they're very clear rules. So this idea that there is a, a, a general connection between religion and faith and entrepreneurship is in itself a new area of research that's 
definitely on the rise. It's something that's very interesting to talk about. Whether pulling from the past or engaging with current trends, the future of the field looks to be diverse and exciting. With more and more young scholars from around the world entering these discussions, there's no predicting how the field will grow and continue to inform academics, policymakers, and entrepreneurs on what we can all agree is a fascinating phenomenon. Thank you for joining us for this special series on the Entrepreneur Podcast. This has been Melissa Firth from the Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship, powered by Ivy. The Entrepreneur Podcast is sponsored by Quantum Shift 2008 alum Connie Clarici and Closing the Gap Healthcare Group. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player or visit entrepreneurship.uwo.ca slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.